Please take your Bibles and turn to Matthew chapter 1, verse 18. We'll be reading there in just a moment. Matthew chapter 1, verse 18. The title of this morning's message, He Became One of Us. I pray at this point in December that you feel like your life is getting more and more in order with your Christmas preparations and you've got all your, your decorations up that you're going to get up, right? And you've got all of the presents purchased that you need to get purchased. I mean, what's today? The ninth? No, today's the 10th. Uh, you've only got a couple of weeks left. So need to, need to get with it. I, uh, I want you to know, though, that during this time of year, that men make sacrifices for their families. Men make sacrifices for their families. I want you to see some photos of men shopping during this time of year. Go ahead and, and put that up there, photos of men shopping. And I want you to see something of the sacrifices involved <laughs> for men this time of year. Look carefully. You may see someone you know, or not. These are actually pictures from <laughs> of men all over the world. This is a universal sacrifice that men make as they go shopping for loved ones or with loved ones. How many are identifying with these pictures? You're feeling it. Okay, some of you, I see that. I recognize that, that form, and that form, been there. <laughs> Photos of men shopping, pointing to the sacrifices <laughs> that men make. Probably one of the most unsung heroes of the Christmas story is the man Joseph. Joseph made sacrifices so that what we call Christmas would happen. And, and I want you to see something of what was involved with those sacrifices so that Jesus could become one of us. Joseph made some very significant sacrifices. But first, I want you to understand that those events that we're about to read about in Matthew 1 are real historical events. They really happen. Increasingly, there's a question. Does it matter whether or not the events of Christmas happen the way they're described in the Bible? I want you to know that it's very important that you understand that this happened in history. This is not a story or a tale that someone made up. This, was, this is a record in Matthew 1 that we're going to read. This is a record of history. A verse that helps us with this is 2 Peter 1.16. The Bible says, for we did not follow cunningly devised fables when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of his majesty. That's the apostle Peter. Peter's saying, we didn't make this up. These aren't fables. These are facts. And we saw Jesus. We knew Jesus. We heard his voice. And you can count on what we're sharing with you. When I entered ministry, there was a battle raging in our denomination of Southern Baptists over the nature of the Bible and whether it could be trusted as history. This debate actually began long before Southern Baptists were even formed in the 17th and 18th centuries. 
there, there, was, there were new discoveries being made. And we were understanding more and more about science and history and the past and how things came to be. There was a great distrust, a skepticism in the supernatural. And, and that was only heightened with the introduction of Darwin's theory of evolution in the late 19th century. As people began to, to look more to science for truth, less to religion for truth, they discarded much of the scripture. Theologians found themselves in a tough place. People who were professors in universities and schools in the late 19th century. How can we teach the Bible, help people to know God when it's filled with stories of supernatural events? When it's filled with stories of miracles? And so one response to that, one of the earliest responses to that was called modernism in theology. And I'm talking about late 1800s, early 1900s. It's called modernism. And modernism basically said, we can teach the Bible without saying that miracles, that you have to believe in miracles, that you don't have to believe in the virgin birth, you don't have to believe that Jesus died for people's sins on the cross, you don't have to believe in a literal resurrection. You just teach the Bible and the, the basic truths of right and wrong that are in the Scripture, and that's what we're going to present. And as you can imagine, that caused a great deal of controversy. This continued to evolve as a way of teaching in the 1940s, 50s, 60s, and 70s. And it, it gained a, the, the whole approach was, was described as demythologizing the Bible. The Bible's full of myths. And it's true, but it's not real. I mean, that was one of the catchphrases. It's true, but it's not real. And so what you need to do in an era where people are educated, where we are rational thinking people, and we believe in science and what we can measure, what we can touch, feel, and taste, in this kind of a world, we don't want to present the myths of Scripture, so we're going to we're going to gut the scripture of the myths. We're just going to present Jesus as a man. And so in that process, as you can imagine, everything that was even smelled like a miracle was discarded. In 1910, uh, there was a reaction in the publishing world as a group of some 64 writers, Bible teachers, and pastors began publishing a series of essays. Uh, within a few years, they had published 90 of them, and they were bound together in a group of books called The Fundamentals. And they were mailed, three million copies were mailed to pastors and professors all over the United States. It was paid for anonymously um, by the man who founded Union Oil of California, Unical. The man also turned around and, and founded uh, the Baptist Institute of Los Angeles, now known as Biola University. And he paid for the publication of these documents because it was a way of reacting to the influx of teaching through the seminaries and the colleges that were anti-supernatural. And there were five basic fundamental teachings associated with the publication of these documents. As you can imagine, the first included the biblical inspiration infallibility. In other words, looking at the Bible and saying, this was inspired by God. We believe this was inspired by God. And we believe that because 2 Timothy 3.16 says, for Scripture, all Scripture has been given by inspiration of God. And that's a Greek word. that It's one big word. It's theonoustos. It means God breathed. 
And it says all the writings, all Scripture has been given by God breathing it. And so the very first fundamental is that the Scripture has been breathed into existence by God and that it is infallible without error. And so inerrancy was introduced as a major concept with, on a wide basis through the publication of those documents. That was the first fundamental. The second one was the virgin birth. The first article in the first pamphlet, the first book that was sent out, three million copies, were articles about the virgin birth and the incarnation of Jesus. The third fundamental were, uh, was that Jesus came and died for our sins, that he took our place, that he was our substitute for our sins. We deserve punishment from a holy God standing before him in judgment at the end of time. We deserve punishment. Jesus gets between us and that punishment, and he takes the punishment in our place. It's called penal substitution. He, he stood in our place when he died on the cross for our sins. That was the third fundamental. The fourth one was the bodily resurrection of Jesus. The modernists and those who were taking all the myths out of the Bible said that Jesus really didn't rise from the dead. It doesn't really have to have a literal resurrection. And so the fourth fundamental was that there was a bodily resurrection. The fifth one is that miracles happened in history. Now the people who believed this were called fundamentalists. And at that time, a fundamentalist was simply someone who believed those five basic truths about God and the Bible. Later, it came to mean other things. It described a, an attitude, perhaps, or an approach to other people. Now it's used to describe fundamentalism. It's described anybody who's negative and mean and hard um, in any religious faith. A fundamentalist Muslim, a fundamentalist Christian, a fundamentalist whatever is someone who's, who's out to get you. But in the beginning, fundamentalism just simply meant what you believed and that you held to these basic truths. When I started out in ministry, Southern Baptist seminaries, for the most part, had representatives of this anti-supernatural teaching uh, in every one of the schools. Part of the controversy, part of the debate um, at the annual meetings of Southern Baptists were to elect leaders who would, over a period of time, restore the fundamental teachings of Scripture to our seminaries and our schools. And, um, and that has ha happened and that has been done. Well, why is that important? Because today we're talking about one of those fundamentals. Looking at the life of Joseph, I want to draw a big red line under the virgin birth. I want you to understand something of why we believe this truth and why we believe it is important. In verses 1 to 17 of this opening of the Gospel of Matthew, the very first gospel in its placement in the New Testament, the first 17 verses of the first chapter of the first gospel is a genealogy showing us something of Jesus' heritage in Jewish life. Every one of these individuals described in verses 1 to 17 was begotten by somebody else. So-and-so begot so-and-so begot so-and-so. Sometimes we call these the begots or the begats because it's the genealogy. And sometimes we just sort of skip that part when we're reading the Bible through. We don't spend a lot of time on the genealogy. And yet it's very significant because some pretty extraordinary people were in this list. Some of them were very godly people. Some of them not so much. And, and yet they were all part of Jesus' family tree. 
But what I want you to see this morning is that each one of these individuals had an earthly father. Their birth was predictable. Their birth was like your birth and my birth. And, and so when we come to this verse 18, it says, Now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. His birth is different. 17 verses of people born just like you and me. But the birth of Jesus was different. And so the question is, why do we celebrate Christmas? What makes the arrival of Jesus so special in human history? Why? The decorations, the trees, the gift giving, all the cultural things in the West, and then there's cultural traditions in other parts of the world. Why all of this celebration? Why all of this focus on the birth of Jesus? Because his birth was different. It's not just because he was the son of God in our faith and what he would do when he walked the earth, but because his very entry into the world was different and was unique. Matthew describes five historic events that help us understand why we celebrate the birth of Jesus. And they all involve this man named Joseph. We're going to look at verses 18 to 25, five historic events. Here's the first event. I want you to see. Event number one, the pregnancy. Event number one is the pregnancy. Look at verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. After his mother Mary was betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found with child of the Holy Spirit. Now this pregnancy was a real event. Matthew's Presenting it as a real historic event. This is what happened. He says this woman, Mary, was betrothed. She was engaged to a man named Joseph. In that day and time, it was customary in Joseph's day that you got engaged to someone. You were betrothed to them. Typically, it was arranged by your families. And that betrothal period lasted a year. And the ceremony came at the end of that one-year betrothal period. Now, what you need to understand about the betrothal is that it wasn't, it was a legal contract. It wasn't like an engagement today where you give someone an engagement ring and then you see someone better next week and you say, I want the ring back. Or however we do it today, I can't hardly keep up. A betrothal was a, like a binding contract. I am promising to become your wife or to become your husband, and I am going to conduct myself now as if I was already married to you. And so in your behavior and your conduct, you were to behave as if you were already married, even though you were simply engaged and the ceremony had not occurred yet. She was betrothed. Now what's interesting about this is that while she was betrothed, and then it says, before they came together. You think he's making a point? Before they came together, she was found with child. Now that word found is passive. She was found with child. This is something that was happening to her. Someone made a discovery about her. She was found. Now who made that discovery? Well, it wasn't Mary that made the discovery. She knew about it. We studied last week in Matthew chapter 1. Mary knew that this was going to happen to her. So it wasn't that she found something out. Did the whole village find out? No. 
because as we see in just a moment, when Joseph is deciding to divorce her quietly, he's wanting to do it secretly so that the whole village doesn't know about it. So it wasn't the whole village that found out she was pregnant. So who found out she was pregnant? Well, we know Joseph found out. It doesn't say that Mary went to him and said, by the way, Joseph, we have a problem. Somehow or other, Joseph figured out what was happening. Some people believe that what occurred is that after Mary encountered that angel, the very first thing she did was go to visit Elizabeth. She knew what was coming. Maybe her parents knew about it, but the first thing she did was get out of town because, you know, you, can't, you can hide a lot of things, but baby bumps are hard to hide. And so she goes to be with Elizabeth. Some people believe that this entire story of Joseph, Matthew verses 18 to 25 in chapter 1, that what happens is that Joseph, when he realizes what's going on, he goes and gets her and brings her back. But one way or another, he figures out that there's a problem, and he is discovered. She has been found with child. Now, the point is of, of this event, the pregnancy, is that this is a historic event. Joseph, very clearly in verse 18, is not the birth father of Jesus. It was before they came together. I'm not drawing pictures. Just read verse 18. He's making it very clear in this historic event. It's not Joseph. Second event. Event number two is the controversy. In verse 19, it says, Then Joseph, her husband, being a just man and not wanting to make her a public example, was minded to put her away secretly. There's a real controversy going on in Joseph's mind. Again, this is a historic event. At some point, he reported it. He's going through a turmoil. He's thinking about this. What am I going to do? He is a just man. He wants to do the right thing. But listen, Mary's condition was an outrage. It was a violation of everything sacred, everything pure in a relationship between a husband and a wife. In that day and time, it was very serious. And a godly man like Joseph would not customarily marry someone like her. What would you do if your fiancé was expecting a child by someone else? And so he's a just man. And in his mind, he only had two choices. A very messy, public, legal proceeding involving charges of gross immorality where everybody would know about it, or secondly, a very quiet divorce that would only involve a couple witnesses. And of course, according to the text, he was minded to put her away, put her away is a, is a word for divorce, secretly. So Joseph pursued justice and mercy. He loved Mary. He wasn't going to do any harm to her. That's event number two. The point is, he's having this controversy. Would he be having this controversy if he was the birth father? No. And so here's another event in history that's pointing to this fact. Jesus is going to be born. Joseph is not the birth father. There's a third event, the dream. And the dream is in verses 20 and 21. But while he thought about these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take to you Mary, your wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. 
And she will bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. So he has a dream of an angel appearing to him. The angel says, do not be afraid. What was he afraid of? I guess he could have been afraid of of damage to his reputation. But as we see the outcome of the story, he didn't hesitate when he knew what God wanted. My personal belief, as I read that, I believe he was afraid of offending God. Because Joseph is called just, his heart was to please God with his whole life. And at, at one point he thought, well, getting married to this woman would not please the Lord. But now this angel comes and says, don't be afraid, Joseph. Don't be afraid to take her as your wife. The angel explains who the father is. In verse 20, he says, that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. This has already been mentioned in verse 18. The Holy Spirit is the one who enabled a woman without a father, an earthly father, to conceive a child. That's event number three. The point is, it's not Joseph. Event number four, the prophecy. Verses 22 to 23. So all this was done, all of this that happened to Mary, that happened to Joseph, all this was done that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. Now, I want you to see this is a quotation of Isaiah 7, verse 14. Often prophecies in the Old Testament had a partial fulfillment at that time and a complete fulfillment at a later time. It often had a dual fulfillment. We see this often in the Old Testament prophecies. In this particular case, it says, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. Well, if you go back and read Isaiah 7, verse 14, listen. Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. The virgin's going to do it. Well, in real time, when this prophecy that was given to Ahaz by Isaiah, there was a virgin. She had a baby. She named him Emmanuel. But Matthew changes the prophecy up just a little bit. He says, Behold, a virgin shall be with child and bear a, child, bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. Well, in the dream, Jesus is told, Joseph is told to call him Jesus, but the prophet said they would call him Emmanuel. You call him Jesus, they will call him Emmanuel. Is there a conflict? I don't believe so. They did call him Jesus. But what did, what did everyone else come to understand about him? They understood he's Emmanuel. He is God with us. And so according to Matthew, 700 years earlier, Isaiah the prophet recorded this event, recorded what was happening in Joseph's life. It was fulfilled. This prophecy was fulfilled, meaning God stepped in and made it happen. He's the one causing it to happen. He's the father of Jesus. And so it's a prophecy that includes a virgin who would bear a son without an earthly father. And this father was not Joseph. Event number five, the testimony. Where did Matthew get all this information? 
Where did Luke get his information? Well, he got it, they got it from Joseph and Mary. Look at verse 24. Then Joseph, being aroused from sleep, did as the angel the Lord commanded him and took to him his wife and did not know her till she had brought forth her firstborn son and he called his name Jesus. Did not know her. You know, I don't know about you, but when I got married, the honeymoon was a big deal. Joseph put off the honeymoon. He waited. And, and how do we know this? Because he told somebody. He said, look, this, this child was conceived of the Holy Spirit. I am not the father. Now, did Joseph and Mary go on and have other children? Yes, they did. There's some people who believe that that's not true, but if you turn to places like Matthew 13 and Mark 6, you see a reference to the four brothers of Jesus. They are mentioned by name, James, uh, Joseph, Simon, and Judas, and his sisters. And it uses sister plural, so he had at least two sisters. So they went on to have six other children after Jesus was born. Joseph is making the point through his own testimony that this, this man who was born to my wife, this baby born to my wife, I was not the father. There are historical events. Here they are. You can believe them or not believe them, but they happened to me. And you can say that history doesn't matter. It mattered to me, Joseph would say. Now before I bring this in, and, uh, and apply it directly to our hearts. I want to I make two aside-type statements or comments based on what Joseph did. Um, Joseph is a remarkable man. I could have preached a sermon about Joseph. But I want you to understand that, that everything Matthew is saying here, he is saying for a reason. And I'm going to come to that. But let me just say a word about Joseph. And I want to say a word to you men. Now, specifically, I want to say a word to you men about your calling in life. And every man here that knows Jesus, you have a calling from God. The first thing that, that captures my attention here is that Joseph was more concerned with pleasing God than he was with pleasing anybody else. That if I'm going to follow God's call in my life, the very first thing that may be lost in the process is my reputation. You know, some of us value our reputation more than we value anything else. And that gets us into trouble, doesn't it? Gets us into fights. You call me what? You know, we, we, we value our reputation. But if you follow him, your reputation has to move down the list. I'm not suggesting you should embrace a bad reputation. I'm just saying that your reputation is the first thing people are going to attack when you follow Jesus. The first thing that they're going to go after. I find it really interesting in our culture. There are a lot of people whose reputations are being attacked right now. Some of it, no doubt, is justified. Others, you have to wonder. There are people who their reputations are being destroyed. 
And we have to wonder what's the truth. And some of these people may go to their grave with people not knowing the truth about their reputation. Mary went to her grave with people still wondering what the truth was about her reputation. Joseph went to his grave with people still wondering what the truth was about what happened with Jesus and how he got here. The Apostle Paul says in Galatians 1, he says, if I were still trying to be a pleaser of men, I would not be a bondservant of Jesus Christ. You can please the Lord and make that your goal, or you can please others, but you can't do both. You can't do both. And I think that's built into our calling as men. Let me point out something else in this text I think is really important. Many times we think of husbands and wives coming together. Men should be the head of that relationship. A wife should be yielding and submissive in that relationship. Men should love their wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. And we we understand some of the basic truths. We may not understand how to do it, but we may understand with our heads something of the truth of how two people become one, how a man and a wife become one in spirit in a marriage relationship. And we understand that men have a responsibility to lead, have a responsibility to take initiative, have a responsibility to protect, have a responsibility to provide for their families. And in that process, to become one, wives yield to their leadership, yield to that responsibility, respecting the fact that God is going to hold them responsible for what happens or doesn't happen spiritually in that home. And we, we, we understand some of those thoughts. I hope you do. But what's really significant here is that in a culture where that was well understood, here you have a man who gives up everything to facilitate God's call in the life of his wife. He does whatever it takes to protect her and to take care of her. Leaving home, moving to Egypt, doesn't matter. He does everything so that God's purpose for Mary could be fulfilled in her life. God has a calling in your life, sir, but he has a calling in the life of your wife. And part of your assignment as a husband is to lay down your life for her. To do whatever it takes to help her accomplish what God has called her to do and to be. And that's woven in. Yeah, there's mystery there. Yeah, there's a common calling for the couple. But Christ laid down his life so that God may accomplish his purpose in us. Christ laid down his life for his bride, the church. How can we do less? So there are these five events in the life of Joseph. All of us point to one resounding truth that Joseph is not the father. So let me close with this question. What difference does it make who the father was? What difference does it make who the father was? Well, look again at the end of verse 21. And you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. He will save them from their sins. Jesus will do this. No one else can do this. You can't do this. No, the greatest man or woman who's ever lived, nobody else could do this, for he will save his people from their sins. 
He was able to do this because Matthew is not leaving any question about how Mary got pregnant. Joseph is not the birth father. God is the father. That's why he could do that. How is it that one man can die in the place of billions of people? Because he's not just one man. He is Emmanuel. He is God with us. In John chapter 1, verse 14, he says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. We saw him. We knew him. We beheld his glory. The glory as of the only begotten of the Father. What does that mean? It means he was the Son of God. And that's how one man can die for billions and make a difference. So this historical event is the foundation of Matthew's gospel. The way Matthew is setting this up, this is the very first thing he tells you about. Now the birth of Jesus was like this. And the implication of it is that if he was not born this way, he could not save his people from their sins. So verse 21 explains Christmas really in one sentence. You shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. I want you to think with me for just a moment. If I were to ask you, and you and I were just sitting together, and I was to ask you, what is the greatest problem that you have right now? What would come to mind? How am I going to pay for all this stuff? How am I going to get all this done? Maybe it's more profound. Maybe you're dealing with a, a family issue, controversy in your home. Holidays have a way of magnifying the intensity of those, those family upsets, don't they? Maybe you're dealing with a health issue in yourself or someone else. Maybe you're just feeling a financial strain. Maybe you got word that you're going to lose your job. Maybe, I don't know, what, what, what's the problem? When we come to Christmas, it says, You shall call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. Jesus came to deal with the greatest problem you've got. And the greatest problem you've got is not whatever else came to mind. The greatest problem you've got is your sin. In Joseph's day, the greatest problem they've got, they could have said, was the Roman army, the Roman government. They're oppressing us. They take our stuff. They tax us heavily. It's about the Romans. And you could have thrown up all these other problems that you have. I could throw up other problems that I have. And we could say, those are our problems. The Romans are our problems. Jesus is not saying that the Romans are your problems. He did not come, and you don't name him Jesus so that he will save you from the Romans. Because the greatest threat that you have right now in your life is your own sin. Not somebody else's sin. The greatest threat, the greatest problem that you are facing right now in your life are your own sins. And so the heart of Christmas is that, yes, I have sin in my life. Yes, there are sins that I'm dealing with. Yes, if I die like this, I would go into eternity and face a holy God who in his justice has to deal with my sin. And that is the greatest threat to my life right now is that I could enter eternity with my sins on my record 
But there's a Savior. And His name is Emmanuel. And He is God with us. And the Bible tells us that, that God made Him who knew no sin to be sin for us. That he died once just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God. That the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God, the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. We give a lot of gifts. We usually don't charge for gifts. That negates the word gift, doesn't it? If I come to you and I say, I've got a gift for you, Dustin, but it's going to be 100 bucks. I'll give you this free gift if you give me $100. Does free gift mean anything at that point? No. The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life. He doesn't charge for this gift. It cost a great deal. Someone else paid for it. And the, the story of Christmas is about a very real Savior who was born in real time. And there was a man named Joseph who testified to those facts. And he was different from any other man, and he's able to accomplish for you what you can't even accomplish for yourself, and that's forgiveness for your sins, and he offers it for you as a gift, but you have to receive it by faith. You have to accept it by faith. He became one of us so that you could know God for real today.